This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, a mission to bring healing to people experiencing homelessness. But we are going to start today with Israel, Norway, and Jamestown, North Dakota. What do they all have in common? And that is Dr. Stephen Reed. He is a professor of religion and philosophy at the University of Jamestown. He studied in Norway last fall and is considered an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls first found near the Dead Sea in Israel. He visits with Main Street's Craig Blumenshine about the fragments that he studies. Dr. Reed, welcome to Main Street. It's nice to be here. Dr. Reed, tell us first, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls are written texts that came near the Dead Sea in Israel. They were written about 2,000 years ago, and they were found in a number of caves north and around the Dead Sea. Most of them were written in papyrus. Some were written on parchment. Some were biblical texts. Some were secular texts. And so there were a large number of fragments and texts that were found. Were they stumbled upon? Were they being looked for? They really weren't looking for them. This is a pretty desolate area near the Dead Sea. There are caves. Is it just east of Jerusalem, not far? Pretty much east of Jerusalem. And it's south of Jericho, is along the Jordan River. The Jordan River flows in to the Dead Sea, and so it's so full of salt. There are no fish that live in the Dead Sea. One can take salt out of it. There are some springs that flow into it, and so there's a little chance of agriculture here or there, but it's pretty desolate, and there aren't many people that live there. Now, there are a group of people called the Bedouin that are semi-nomadic peoples that have goats and sheep, and so they go up and down this area, and they're the ones that initially found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The initial story is that a, a boy was out looking for a lost sheep. He came to a cave and he threw a rock into the cave and he heard a noise and went inside and he found pottery urns. And inside of those pottery urns, he found scrolls. Now, there's several stories about when and how that happened, probably around 1946 or so. And eventually there were seven of these scrolls that were brought to Jerusalem. And they didn't know the value of them or how old they were, and they tried to find people to buy them. So they started showing them around to various archaeological schools. Uh, and eventually, three of them ended up with an Israeli scholar called Eliezer Sukanik, and three or four were brought to the United States and ended up being bought in the United States, and then eventually made, made their way back to Israel. So those first seven scrolls ended up and later on, they built what was called the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem, in, in West Jerusalem. And so that's where they, they were housed. But after that, archaeologists started looking up and down these caves. They were able to find probably Cave 1 at Qumran, where these came from. And so they did excavation, and they found more fragments. But as time went on, the Bedouin kept looking in caves and finding more and more texts all the way from Jericho in the north of the Dead Sea, all the way down really to Masada. Actually, at Masada, archaeologists excavated there. Gail Yadin excavated and found texts there too. So when I refer to the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm referring to all kind of written material that was found in a number of different caves and locations. And in terms of a timeline, we're talking about mid to late 20th century? This was 1946 until about 1963 or so that these were found. And before we get into the historical significance, do you believe there are more still to be found? Well, it's possible, and they keep looking through more caves. Recently, they have excavated and found a few more fragments of one particular text that was known from earlier times. So there's still possibilities. There are so many caves, and if some of those caves, like near Qumran, uh, caves have collapsed down in the ravines, and so we don't know what's happened to those. Maybe they've washed away, or maybe they have been found. They may be somewhere. And in terms of archaeological finds, this is truly one of the most important ever found. Would you agree with that? It, it is. In, in terms of the 20th century, one of the most important ones, yes. So let's turn to the, the historical significance. Why are they so important? 
Well, most of them are around 2,000 years old. And so that takes us back to the time in which you have the origins of Christianity. Uh, it's about the time that Jesus was ministering in Galilee. And, it, and about the time uh, Judaism begins to develop in certain ways. We have known before that there were groups called uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. And a number of people think these are related to a group called the Essenes. So it takes us back to texts that were written 2,000 years ago. And mostly they were written on organic materials, papyrus and parchment. And generally, we think there were these, these were written throughout the country, but generally they would be deteriorate over time. And because it was so dry near the Dead Sea, uh, they were preserved. And so that was kind of an accident. Scholars didn't really expect to find them there. What relationship have they had relative to Old Testament writings? Well, they're very important for the Old Testament. There are copies of most of the Old Testament books that are found in, in, in multiple copies uh, at Qumran. Probably a fourth of the texts were biblical texts. Um, there were also commentaries on these biblical texts. Uh, there were new types of material like new collections of psalms, new prayers, new legal texts that were similar. Many of them were religious, and so they were primarily Jewish. And so they reflect Jewish understanding, you know, at that point in time. Uh, and before that time, the Otis complete Hebrew Bible we had was about a thousand, about 80, a thousand, a thousand years later. So this takes us back considerably earlier than that. What have Christians thought about the Dead Sea Scrolls? What has it meant to Christianity? Well, I think for some people... There, some of the texts are very close to the later biblical texts that we have today. And often people that want to prove the, the, the legitimacy of the text, are, they want to see that those texts have been transmitted faithfully throughout the centuries. Um, but it's also true that there are some differences in those texts. And sometimes there are expansions or shorter versions of particular books. Uh, and they show some of the diversity of the transmission of those texts. And scholars are particularly interested, we like to find different textual variants, and we try to reconstruct the history of the transmission of those texts. You went to Norway last fall, as I said in my open, to further your research. When you were coming home, what was on your mind? <laughs> well, thinking about getting ready for the next semester. <laughs> I got back here in early January, and I think a week later I had to start uh, teaching oh, my classes. Much, not a lot of time to reflect. Well, no, since then, no. What have you th What have you thought about? Well, it, it was very exciting to get back and 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 work with some material that actually I produced uh, a catalog of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1994. I've seen a photo of that, and that is yeah. not light reading. It is more than an inch thick. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So it was kind of exciting. It's obviously out of date, and I didn't think anyone would be interested in updating it. But some of the Norwegian scholars were interested in the work that I had done and encouraged me to update this. And they want to put it online so it will be available for scholars to use now. When I did this in 94, uh, a lot of this material had not been published yet. And now it's been published. Almost everything's been published. And so I can go back with the catalog and uh, connect particular details in terms of publication with the photographs. So I can make it fuller at that point. So it's very fun to have a chance to go back and pick up a project that you worked at 30 years ago uh, and have someone interested in updating it. So, What is the state of preservation now of, of what we know to be the Dead Sea Scrolls? It depends on which ones. Some of them have deteriorated uh, immensely. Um, as an example, the, the Isaiah scroll, which was about 10 meters long, wow. and this is one of the main ones that's displayed in the Shrine of the Book. There's a large, large area, and it's displayed. For a while, that was the original one. They have had to replace that with a facsimile because it gets darker over age, over time. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so they now they... They don't want them under light very much. And they've also taken some of these on international displays around the world. Um, you know, San Diego, Washington, D.C., they have been exhibited around the world. 
think at the moment they're doing kind of a moratorium on that because this is that this leads to can lead to deterioration mm. over time. Now there's another text that's called like the Genesis Apocryphon. This is a different text, uh, and when they unroll of it, it it accelerated the t- deterioration process. And evidently, the ink somehow had eaten through the leather. Leather, and once oxygen reached this, then it started decomposing fairly rapidly. And so that is is a problem with with some pieces of material. It varies, and so some um, are in, in bad. They've crumbled, or the edges have deteriorated uh, in many ways. Now that's why I'm often I'm interested in the photographs. Because sometimes the photographs were taken back in the 50s. They preserve more information than is currently available on the, on the fragments because of deterioration. So those photographs are precious because they give us a snapshot of what those fragments looked at. Looked like back, most of those photos were taken in the 50s. When they were first discovered. Yeah. There are also stories that perhaps some have been destroyed by folks who maybe didn't know what they had, maybe were vandalized for some reason. Tell us more about that. Well, and some of their different issues, uh, Kondo was one of the antiquities dealers that uh, brought a lot of these materials to the museum, and they were purchased by the museum or other people. Uh, but they stored these in their homes in, in various places. The temple scroll was known to be stored under the floor of someone's house. And so deterioration at that point. So part of it was the better one that first had these didn't know how to take care of them. I would have to admit, though, that sometimes scholars didn't know how to best deal with these either. Uh, from, a, from a translation perspective or from different beliefs perspective, when you say they didn't know how to deal with them, what are you speaking I'm of? I'm talking about physically. Physically, because okay. Because when they, they would join them together, they would use, they initially use scotch tape on the back of these fragments to hold them together. And that has deteriorated sure. over time. Um, they also soak them in various oils and things to try to make it more legible. That was probably not the best thing to do for these mm-hmm. fragments. Mm-hmm. So most of these scholars were textual scholars. They were interested in reading the text and unrolling them. Uh, one that was found was the copper scroll. And they actually used a bandsaw to cut strips because it couldn't be unrolled. The copper was so brittle. So they wanted to read it. And the only way to unread it is to cut it into strips. But it's obviously eroding around all of those cuts now. Uh, It's not, you know, totally. So that's a complicated question, you know, as you mentioned. They have more conservators now working with that material, which is good. But initially, it was just scholars trained like me to study the Bible, and they didn't always know, you know, the best way to handle material. Are there, is there agreement on most scholars who are spending their lives like you've had in researching the Dead Sea Scrolls on what they mean and how they are being interpreted? Is there any division there? Oh, there are lots of differences. Scholars always Give me some examples. Well, one of the issues would be um, my, my professor, James Sanders, produced a, a 11Q psalm scroll. It has a number of biblical psalms, but it also has some additional psalms, like 151, for instance. Um, the, the, the psalms that most of us are familiar with had 150. But in the Syriac translation, there are 100, 151, 152, 153. Several of those are found in this scroll, as well as other psalms that we do not did not know about before. And the question relates to, now, is this a real psalm book, or is this uh, like a liturgical collection of psalms that develop later? And, and there are variations in this text, so do we change our modern-day translations to reflect that? And actually... In one, the New Revised Standard Version, they actually include Psalm 151 uh, as part of the Bible. So in terms of, you know, what what is the book of Psalms? Maybe we should have several versions of the book of Psalms. Um, my, my professor thought there's certain books that we have, like Jeremiah, there's a shorter form and a longer form. 
and with the Hebrew fragments there. So which of those is original? Which one do we use? Um, or do we use both? So, I mean, that's an area of, of debate in terms of those texts. Because when I say, and even do we call it a biblical text or not? Or is it something different? In your mind, are they biblical texts? Well, I think they are, but re reflecting, I, I think that there's a certain um, certain fluidity of different textual traditions that develop, and I think it's sometimes difficult to know which is the earliest or which is the most genuine, or maybe you could say these are these are all equally. Uh, the other issue, and so these are old debates we have, even in terms of the Old Testament books, Roman Catholics believe that the book of Sirach, is part of the Old Testament. Well, we find copies of Sirach as well at Qumran. So we don't quite know what did they consider biblical text, because there's no way to distinguish. They have mm. they have a text. We don't, they don't say this is biblical, this is non-biblical, those kinds of issues. So it's it's almost anachronistic to talk about their Bible. We don't know what their Bible was. Can you give us? And discuss maybe some historical figures or events that are mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls that maybe weren't discussed before. There, there aren't too many. Um, there aren't many historical texts, you know, that tell us about the history of the times uh, that that mention uh, individuals. However, um, at at Qumran, uh, there are some texts. Uh, that are cut like at Naho Hever, which were a little later. They were deposited during the second uh, second Jewish revolt. The first Jewish revolt is AD 70, and most of the Qumran texts were deposited before that time. But AD 135 is the second Jewish revolt, and the leader of that was Simon Bar Kokhba, or he was variously called. And we actually have, in some of those caves, there are letters written to him, and by him that tell about he was he was the leader of the the resistance against the Romans at that point, so that actually gives us a, a lot of important information about about the role. Uh, that's sort of after the Bible, but if you talk about a person, um, there's also another collection uh, by a woman who is named Babatha uh, that has deposited some like her marriage contract and and. Uh, other documents about owning a date orchard and things like that. So that gives us a, a, a little bit of a look at a woman who is trying to um, to protect her property and, and her possessions. And we didn't know about this woman before, uh, but it's quite a quite a fascinating. I, I actually wrote wrote an article with a couple scholars at NDSU about accounting practices in the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> Uh, and also one about uh, this woman and how, how women protected their property uh, back at that time. We're visiting with Dr. Stephen Reed. He is a professor of religion and philosophy at the University of Jamestown and widely considered an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Why has that been so important to you to spend so much time in your academic life researching the Dead Sea Scrolls? <clears throat> well, I think initially I, I went to seminary, went up to graduate school. I was working with the Old Testament. Um, he began to be very interested in how these biblical texts were transmitted up until the present day. Um, I wanted to learn the original languages, so I learned Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and so I could read these texts, uh, but was wanting to read, you know, as back as far as we can. And in terms of textual criticism, the Dead Sea Scrolls give us a lot of examples of ancient texts, and so they help fill in this whole process. So it, it's, it's helped me just to continue my interest in this whole transmission process of the Bible. Has this influenced your religious or theological thought, or has it influenced others in a way that's remarkable? It, it certainly can. I mean, I think uh, overall, I think the texts were transmitted faithfully. But I do think also that the scribes sometimes would make some, make some additions uh, so make some adjustments to the text. So I think, I, I don't see the text, I used to think the text was something that was frozen and unchanging, and that that was the only place that authority was. Uh, but I can begin to see, and we already knew that it was, when, once it's translated into Greek and into Aramaic and into Latin, there are changes that take place along the way. 
Um, and every translation is a bit different. I would say they add a little something to it, and something is sort of lost. And so this whole process gives us uh, uh, a kind of glimpse in, in terms of the light, these living texts that are living and are adaptable uh, to life. My professor talked about adaptable to life. And so I, I kind of like looking at this process. Mm -hmm. We have a couple minutes left, Dr. Reed. Can you discuss <clears throat> what maybe your future goals, our hopes are relative to your continued study with the Dead Sea Scrolls. What do you think you have left to learn? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I'll keep working on this. I've been interested in, uh, and I've worked on a, um, sort of the history and the background of this photographic process. Uh, I'm also interested in the early scholars and how they went about doing their work every generation, the new generation wants to sort of redo things and rethink what the earlier generations did. Uh, but some of these early scholars did not always leave records of what they did. And so it's kind of interesting. I did a paper on John Allegro, who was one of the early scholars working on this. And I may continue to work on that. I think each of these scholars, their biographies are kind of interesting and in how they went about doing the process. So if we know more about their, the process of what they did, um, I've been particularly concerned about can we, uh, much was bought from the Bedouin and some was found by archaeologists, but it very quickly got mixed together, unfortunately. So, uh, and today we recognize there are recently many sort of fakes that are on the market. And so the issue of the authenticity mm. of these texts is important to try to establish as, as carefully as we can. So knowing that early history and knowing how, how can, can we trace these back to the caves has been very interesting. As we conclude our discussion today, Dr. Reed, how would you complete this sentence? In my mind, the most significant or interesting as, aspect of the Dead Sea Scrolls is? I think the fact that these texts even exist. They're 2,000 years old. Uh, they were made out of papyrus. They were made out of parchment. Uh, the fact that they weren't, that they, they have been found at all in the 20th century is quite amazing. And they were left for this long. So I think their, their survival is probably the most important thing. Dr. Stephen Reed is a professor of religion and philosophy at the University of Jamestown and an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dr. Reed, thank you for joining us on Main Street. It was nice to be with you. That was Professor of Religion and Philosophy at the University of Jamestown, Dr. Stephen Reed, in conversation with Craig Blumenshine. Still to come on Main Street, conversations on health care and how to help people experiencing homelessness. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. The Fargo City Commission voted 4-1 to one to oppose a series of state bills filed by Republican legislators targeting transgender residents in the state. Cody Schuler, advocacy manager with the American Civil Liberties Union of North Dakota, told city commissioners that legislation amounts to a culture war that takes away from real issues North Dakota is facing. The Fargo City Commission must firmly act to condemn the North Dakota legislature's assault on the LGBTQ plus and two-spirit citizens, especially the transgender community. More than 20 bills have been sponsored, making North Dakota one of the leading states in the nation at the moment, in anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. Fargo Mayor Tim Mahoney said it's good to hear people stand up and speak because often they can't. This is a strong support the city of Fargo has for the people we want in our community. Talented, wonderful people who want to raise a family, want to do things. And this is an important statement the city of Fargo has to make is that we will stand for people and stand for them coming into our community. Commissioner John Strand pointed out that the bills under consideration are workforce issues. Quote, all of these topics will affect people's choices and will harm the efforts to attract and retain employees if passed. End quote. A new NDSU study shows North Dakota's oil industry accounts for more than $42.6 billion in gross business volume. The study shows the industry creates nearly 50,000 jobs and accounts for $3.8 billion in state and local revenues. The figures are from 2021, but were released this week at a Capitol News conference. 
Dean Bangsund is one of NDSU's researchers. When the industry started expanding, it was driven by oil field development and infrastructure build-out. The growth was unprecedented, and we weren't sure where the industry was going. We weren't sure exactly how to handle it. We had a temporary workforce. We had a lot of growing pains going on in North Dakota as this industry was was rapidly expanding. Bangson says over the past 8 to 10 years, the industry has matured, meaning the vast majority of the industry's economic footprint is related to production. It means we have a permanent workforce. It means that what's going to take place in this industry is going to be largely uh, unaffected by the swings that we would see with oil field development, like what was taking place in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Bankson says the industry is resilient, and that was shown in its rebound after the COVID pandemic. And the Minnesota House has approved a nearly $2 billion bonding bill to fund infrastructure projects across the state. The DFL-crafted plan needed buy-in from Republicans because the Minnesota Constitution requires a three-fifths majority in both houses to pass a borrowing plan. The Minnesota Senate has not yet voted on a bonding bill, and GOP leaders in that chamber are vowing to block it. Senate Republican Minority Leader Mark Johnson says Republicans want permanent tax relief. We just want them to know that 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 bill is going to be dead on arrival because we believe that, that we need to see some tax cuts tied to that. If Democrats want to use cash for projects, they would only need a simple majority. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. With wind, snow, and the temps that we get in North Dakota, well, you can be very thankful to have a roof over your head at night. Data show that on any given night in the United States, about a half a million people are experiencing homelessness. Dr. Jim O'Connell is featured in the new book, Rough Sleepers, by Pulitzer Prize winner Tracy Kidder. Dr. O'Connell is the founder of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, and he joins Conversations on Healthcare podcast hosts Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter to talk about how homelessness can be both caused by and lead to other health conditions. Dr. O'Connell, or Dr. Jim, if we may, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, I'm actually very thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I think about people who are walking down streets all across the country and asking themselves if uh, our homeless problem uh, is getting worse. And if it is, uh, what caused the increase? Was it the pandemic or what, what do you have to say about the question? I think what's contributing to the growing numbers of homelessness, and it tends to fluctuate a little bit, but what continues to feed it, I think, is the things we all know all too well. There's a growing disparity in income. Uh, Rents are getting very high. Um, Finding new housing is expensive and difficult to do. Um, And the scale at which we need help with both with rental units and with housing is really a scale that we haven't achieved yet. So I think as we work very hard, many many cities around the country are being incredibly creative, along with help from HUD and their state governments to find new housing. But the rate at which they can find new housing doesn't seem to be able to keep up with the numbers of people that are coming in newly homeless. So I think we have a big challenge. Yeah, I think I just saw that the year over year cost for housing had increased 7.9%, probably creating more people who are facing uh, homelessness as well. That's correct. And, you know, I realize that medicine is what I know, and I think it's kind of complicated. But when I look at housing and the issues around housing with community development and, you know, all the rules and regulations, it's probably even more complicated right. than housing. Right. So I am by no means an expert. But I do know that my friends that involved in doing housing projects in big cities like LA and San Francisco and Seattle, when you go through the whole process of, of trying to build new housing for, you know, formerly homeless people, you know, once you get through all of the, you know, all of the rules and regulations, the legal fees, the community things, it takes a very long time to create it. And by the time you get there, the average cost of housing, for example, of a unit in San Francisco now is about six or $700,000 by the time all is said and done marginally less in LA and about the same in other some other cities. So the the expense of creating new housing is kind of overwhelming and we need to understand that. Take yeah. us through uh, your treatment approach. Tell us about what it means to treat people in this context of homelessness. 
you know, I'm an accidental tourist in this world. I was planning to do something completely different. I wanted to stay hospital-based medicine, wanted to become a specialist in oncology. Um, and I had no inkling of what it meant to go to the community and try to take, take care of uh, populations that we were traditionally excluding from the mainstream. So when I got sent as my um, as a one-year, please go do this, by my chief of medicine, I remember getting to the shelter and realizing it was completely foreign to me, even though it was only six blocks away from where I had just finished being the senior resident in charge of the intensive care unit. And I kept thinking, how hard can a shelter clinic be after you do that? And it turns out it's immensely more difficult because you have so little control over so many factors. And I realized with some joy in the intensive care unit, you control lots and lots of things, um, but not in the shelter. And I remember the first thing that the nurses who were already working there told me, they basically told me I had to relearn my how to approach people. I had to soak feet, for example, for about two months before they would let me do any doctoring. And I think the lessons I learned from the nurses back then are still the lessons that have sort of lived through all of these years. And that's it. You have to take time to get to know people who have been really disenfranchised and they are vulnerable, fragile, often um, very chary of the the mainstream system. So for me to go march in as I wanted to do and get their chief complaint and write a script and do all that within the first 10 or 15 minutes was just not possible. So I remember, you know, that, that experience of how to take time to earn trust, you know, have coffee with your patients, talk to them, share a little bit that, that kind of time had not been treasured or, or valued when we were in the hospital training. And we learned that was the only way to begin doing any kind of, long-term continuity of really good care um, was to take a lot of time up front. So that, that more than anything, I remember stands out. Our homeless people that put us together and designed the, um, they insisted that they really wanted continuity of care, that they didn't want fragmented care. They said their lives were already fragmented enough and people were coming and going. They wanted consistency in their doctors and their nurses. So they wanted to know when you know, if I saw somebody on Monday night, if they were sick on Thursday, they could call and I would answer. You know, there's so many, so many challenges that you face. Certainly, certainly you also have a pretty good team with a, a wide range of skill sets, but take us through your own learning process about addiction and mental illness. I was clearly trained in medicine, you know, and I did not have much sense of social medicine or of addiction care or care for substance use disorders. And um, very little experience in caring for people with severe and persistent mental illness. They were always people we referred to another system to be cared for. As all of you probably know all too well, the people who have been chronically living in our street, our city streets and in our shelters tend to bear a very, very high burden of co-occurring medical, psychiatric and substance use disorders. And if you really want to care for them, you have to learn how to integrate the care co-locate the care if you're really going to do care well. And they were skills we had to learn. Like I, we now have a psychiatrist on, we have had for 20 years, a psychiatrist on our team whose panel of patients is the same panel that we all care for. And we've learned that has been critical. So when I'm seeing someone for their medical problems to know the psychiatrist that's with me on the team is a person that can see them if they need help. And then we also have a wonderful recovery coach who helps us integrate our substance use care into, um, into the mainstream so we can do all of the, offer all the medications for opioid and other dependencies and make sure people have easy access to that. And I think finally it was learning that, you know, you can't silo this care. You really have to learn how to integrate. I've often thought that homeless people, when you reach out to take care of them, will teach you before we realize it ourselves, the real weaknesses in our health, mainstream healthcare system. And that sure was one, the lack of integration coordination was certainly one of them. I'm going to ask you in a minute to comment on this this uh, phrase, the rough sleepers, and, and what that means. When people see homeless people on the street, they often ask why there's shelters they could go to. There's housing vouchers in the city. And it is it is true in our experience that, that some people will not go to a shelter. So what have you learned about why we have so many of what's called these rough sleepers? And what is a rough sleeper? All of my preconceptions turned out to be very wrong, as you can imagine. And the mayors and the governors for years have made sure there have been shelter beds for any adult that really wants one. And our clinics, our Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, which is our FQHC, you know, has 
for years, since the beginning, done clinics in all of the shelters. And so we thought we were getting out to be exactly right. where people were. And the first winter I was working, remember, I remember thinking, wow, people are dying, but they're the people who are staying outside, not even coming into the shelter. Right. So as much as we thought we were doing a great job of reaching out to be where people were, we had to get to know this in Boston, a relatively small population of what they called themselves to be rough sleepers. They were sleeping the rough, but they are the folks who they, they will get upset if you say, why do you choose to live on the streets? Cause they'll look, laugh at me and say, I'm not choosing to live on the streets. Mm-hmm. I'm choosing not to go to a 500 bed shelter where I have to sleep with a lot of other people or where mm-hmm. it's going to tell me when I can go to the bathroom and when I have to turn the lights off. Other reasons are a little bit more complicated. And the biggest lesson I had was one night it's freezing cold. It was minus 10 degrees there was a, a Northeaster predicted and I was trying to get this poor man who had pretty, pretty severe schizophrenia living under a bridge, try to get him to come in. And we, were, we had gotten to know him slowly, but he sort of put his hand up to me. And he, when I said, come on, please come in. He went, he said, no, I can't go in there. He said, you don't understand when I go into the shelter, I can't tell which voices are mine, but when I'm here under the bridge, I know the voice is mine and I can, I can contain it and control it. So I started to realize there are immensely complicated reasons why people or their individual reasons cannot go into a shelter. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, we've learned that all of them, if you offer them a place to live, a house, they'll say yes. (laughs) But a shelter, they'll say no. And now there's this whole initiative around hospitalizing patients. I'm wondering, it's a complicated issue. I'm wondering uh, where you come down on the use of hospitalization for, for homeless you know, I concur completely that it's a very complicated uh, situation. And I can think over the years of how much we've tortured over the decisions you make about whether you can just allow someone to make their own decisions and stay out in the bit of gold when they're vulnerable or when you take away their rights. But um, what is our experience is that even when you bring somebody in, which is a very difficult thing to do against their will, the availability of treatment afterwards is so limited mm-hmm that more often than not, that person ends back up on the street after several days or several weeks without the long-term care I think they really need and deserve. So I'm always hesitant to talk about committing people unless we know what's on the other side, that there is a real plan for treatment afterwards. And I think that's the big gap in the system, as you're saying it now. We've During deinstitutionalization, we lost from 800,000 beds in the country down to less than 200,000. And now when we bring somebody to the emergency room, there's really no place for them to go. They often will be committed and and hang out or languish in the emergency room for days before they can find any place to go. And often by that time, they're ready to be discharged. And so we only do it on rare occasions now when we know somebody's in imminent danger of harm to themselves or others. And we do it trying hard to work with the emergency room and everyone in the Department of Mental Health to make sure that person has a treatment plan on the other side. But it is a really, really difficult problem. I learned my lesson when I've been working on a van that goes out at nighttime. Every night it goes out from nine at night till five in the morning, run by these amazing people from Pine Street Inn Mm -hmm. with money from the State Department of Public Health. And they've gotten to know everybody outside and they serve, the van serves soup and sandwiches and blankets. They did Homeless people didn't want a medical van. They wanted something. That could, right. I've been riding on that for years and learning how to, you know, with the, the help of these folks to get to know people slowly, give them soup and get to know them. And I remember one woman who we tried hard. She was very crusty and really tough, but we worked hard. And finally, she started taking soup from us and a blanket. And we thought that was really good. She was living on a stoop. And one day she would, you know, something happened and the police had to commit her against her will. And I didn't see her till about two years later. I was at a meeting in the South Shore. And there she was looking really together, dressed literally on the board of one of the shelters at that point. And I went up and I wanted to hug her. And I said, why, you look great. It's been so long. And she turned and looked at me and she said, get away from me, you bastard. She said, you left me out there for 10 years and mm-hmm. never did anything. Uh, wow, that is that is a great story. And maybe I can pull a few threads together. Your your patient who was under the bridge who said, no, I'm not going to a shelter, but if he gave me a place to live, I'd come out from under this bridge. And I was thinking that something that the COVID pandemic presented to us uh, was that all of these large congregate shelters uh, suddenly, which have always been intolerable to me to see them, you know, 20, 30, 40 men sharing a dormitory room, they suddenly were untenable from the public health department's perspective too. And where was their space? Well, there was space in 
hotels, Super 8 being one of my uh, my most favorite. These hotels were taken over by the uh, systems of care and the health department, at least in Connecticut, and became the most civilized, comfortable, kind of logical place for people to be sheltering one person to a room or two people to a room uh, that the most that we'd seen. And I was 100% convinced when the pandemic ended that that model would persist. But I'm really curious what your experience was throughout COVID. How did it change things for our homeless population? Did it make it better in some ways because we had to protect them and protect the population, I suppose, from them as well? We are still, I think, suffering from the lingering effects of COVID just from a how we approach life point of view. But uh, in Boston, you know, where we have shelters, some of our shelters are not, you know, many of them, like Pine Street Inn was four or 500 beds, you know, and the, the city shelter was about 400 beds. So we were panicked when COVID came, that once anyone with COVID got into that, it would be a nightmare. Um, and what we found is when one person with COVID was in the shelter, we needed to get them somewhere. And we didn't have the advantage of hotels the way you did. We couldn't do that in Boston. I don't think, I don't know what the story was. So we had to come up with other ideas. But isolating somebody uh, during COVID, we learned a lot. Um, two, one is we learned that COVID sort of was a great equalizer. Everybody in the in city was equally affected. And so there was a lot of empathy maybe toward homeless people that had not been done before. But then there was a the difficulty of, if you if you have no money and you're living on the edge in homelessness and you need to be isolated or quarantined, it's impossible if you don't have food and money and more than just the shelter. So we learned a lot about the needs of homeless people. And I think that was really good. People started to understand how complicated and difficult this was. Um, a, a good story to come from COVID, though, is what we found is that 40 percent of everybody in the shelters got COVID. So it was along with one of the city in Massachusetts, the highest incidence of COVID. But we did the vaccinating ourselves. Mm -hmm. And much to our surprise, there were very few people who refused the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think they had a very clear idea among themselves as a community of how to, that they needed to protect each other. And it was striking to us where you didn't run into any of the issues I thought we were going to run into. Some of that, I think, was because the nurses they know and the doctors they know were giving them the shots. It wasn't some stranger coming in. Um, but I do know that it was it's a real sense of community that most of us don't appreciate mm. exists within the homeless population. Mm. Dr. Jim, you're an inspiration uh, to all those who provide health care to persons who are homeless and all those who are working to end homelessness. Dr. Jim, thank you so much. Continued good luck with your work. Thank you both. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Jim O'Connell, the founder of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, talking with Conversations on Healthcare podcast host Mark Marcelli and Margaret Flinter. That comes to us from the Community Health Center of Connecticut. Tom Ezern is next. Recent infrastructure and climate laws could mean billions in grants for rural communities. This is kind of like our one shot, probably in my lifetime, of ever getting this much federal money to help us make improvements in the community. Who can help local officials negotiate a complicated process and take that shot? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and a stereotypical history professor you might think only is going to read microfiche and microfilm and old newspapers and have nothing to do with new technology, but boy, would you be wrong. We learn about an Instagram reel gone viral in this week's Plains Folk essay with Tom Ezern, Monumental Matters. In Oslo last summer, we called in at the Gustav Vigeland Museum, adjacent to Frozner Park. In a cluttered corner of the museum, I espied something that signified nothing to other visitors, but it meant something to me. It was a plaster cast of Norway's great romantic poet, Henrik Vigeland. I recognized this as the original study for the bronze statue of Vigeland that stands in Island Park of Fargo. A few days later, we were walking around the coastal town of Christiansand, and darned if we didn't spot another bronze Virgilin, identical to the one in Fargo. 
we learn that Vigiland, the sculptor, had the commission to cast the bronze for Virgiland, the poet's hometown of Christiansand. Somehow, Herman Feldy of Abercrombie, North Dakota, got wind of this, and a second bronze ended up in Fargo. On our last night in Oslo, we ubered over to Varfressler's Cemetery at dusk to pay our respects at the lovely monument on Virgiland's grave. Nearby, I made an Instagram reel of the tomb of Bjornsterne Bjornsson, which quickly racked up 87,000 views. These Norwegians are great people for monuments. Come to think of it, too, eastern North Dakota is bespangled with Norwegian monuments. The Bjornsterne Bjornsson Baltestein on the NDSU campus, and another one in Mayville, the Ivor Ossen bust across the river at Concordia College, the Rollo statue near the Sons of Norway Lodge, and others I'm probably forgetting. The only immigrant identity that outnumbers the Norwegians in North Dakota is the Germans from Russia. But where are their monuments? We may say, oh, there are spectacular Roman Catholic churches. Those are their monuments. And there also are many religious folk monuments all over German-Russian country. But no such statement of a self-conscious immigrant identity as a Bjornsson or a Virgiland is to the Norwegians. What if we were to fill that monumental niche? German-Russians and other places on the plains have done so. Alongside the Esplanade in Medicine Hat, Alberta, is a dandy bronze of a German-Russian man and woman stooking wheat together. The creation of sculptor Jim Hauser, this installation speaks well to the agricultural proclivities and the gender roles of German-Russian immigrants to the Canadian prairies. In the Volga German country of western Kansas, specifically the town of Victoria, and across the street from the Cathedral of the Plains, St. Fidelis, is a splendid sculpture by Pete Felton, the master of limestone. It depicts a German-Russian couple, their four children, and, I am happy to note, their dog. What are we waiting for? I propose we get organized and commence installations to assert the German-Russian presence on the land and in our history. Here's a program. First, and this may be my favorite, just west of Ashley on the north side of Highway 11, a statue of Wilhelmina Geisler, the martyr mother of the Germans from Russia, the woman who died attempting to save her daughter from a prairie fire in 1898. The fire came raging across Dry Lake, which really was a dry lake bed at the time. And I can point you to the place where the events took place. Second, at Strasbourg and along Highway 85, the Lawrence Welk Highway, a statue of the man himself. Now, you may think you are too cool for Lawrence Welk, but if so, then you don't know enough of the history of American popular culture to understand Third, to match the Bjornsson on the NDSU campus, and in honor of our great German-Russian Michael Miller, just retired from 45 years of service, an installation of some kind, we can talk about it, bespeaking the German-Russian commitment to the land. I predict this one will get done before the other two. Dr. Tom Eisern is a distinguished professor of history and Instagram user at North Dakota State University. Dakota Daybook is next. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Josh Beauchet, broker and realtor with Hatch Realty, brokered by Real. Serving homebuyers and sellers in the Fargo-Moorhead Metro, Grand Forks, Bismarck, Mandan, and Detroit Lakes area. Josh can be reached at 701-369-4839 or hatchrealty.com. Today's Dakota Date Book is part of an ongoing weekly series produced in partnership with the Department of Public Instruction on Indigenous Peoples Themes. North Dakota Native American Essential Understanding Number 5 is about tribal policies, treaties, and sovereignty. It states, Native people practice self-determination, developing tribal policies and practicing political activism. Despite a history of U.S. policies and treaties that have often been detrimental, 
Native people are members of sovereign nations that predate the U.S. government. Today on Dakota Datebook, we'll be hearing about sovereignty and tribal government from Diane Fox, educator and enrolled member of the Mandan Hidatsa Arikara Nation. We know a lot of our generation don't know a lot. And so one of the first things I do is, is who knows what sovereignty means? And what I would do is I write it on the board. Who can pronounce this word? You know, and they'll kind of look at it and they'll look at it. And I'll tell them what it is, sovereignty. If you're Native American, you should know what this word means. And I explain to them what it means, that power to rule ourselves. But to get that, we went through a lot. And a lot was taken from us. And slowly coming back to us, but it's going to take us a long time to get where we were before. So tribal government is probably one of my uh, ones I like to teach a lot. Uh, I have a small class in that one, but it's it's really a one-on-one, so I like it. Um, we talk about the different uh, policies, um, the different laws that we have, the tribal different tribal structures. My father is from the Ho-Chunk Nation, and that's in Wisconsin. And so um, their tribal structure is a little bit different than ours. So I do a little comparison. And um, with all the tribes in the United States, every tribe is different. You know, down south, they still use traditional war chiefs and village chiefs as their tribal structures. So we... we um, we compare and we contrast. But um, with the Ho-Chunk Nation, they're kind of set up like the United States. So they have a president, and then they have a three-branch system. You know, as as of here, we have uh, a seven-person council that makes the rules for us. So then they're like, oh, I thought that was all the same. I thought everyone had a tribal chairman. Well, ours is the president where, where I'm enrolled at. And then I know a few things there, and I know a lot here. So, I, like I said, we do a lot of comparisons. I'm Scott Simpson. If you'd like to learn more about the North Dakota Native American Essential Understandings and to listen to more Indigenous elder interviews, visit www.teachingsofourelders.org. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota. Funding for this series is from Humanities N.D., and the North Dakota Department of Public Instruction. That's it for this Tuesday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, what does it mean to be a student of philosophy? And is that only in a classroom setting? We talk that over with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.